Well, good evening. Uh, welcome to William Fink's Christagenia Talk Show. You are muted. Seven. You are unmuted. Uh, this is Pastor Mark Downey filling in for Bill tonight. Here you are muted. Is Pastor Don Elmore. Don is the senior pastor of the Fellowship of God's Covenant People in Northern Kentucky. How are you doing, Don? I'm doing all right. Well, thank I, would you like for... first, I, would, I would like to say something first. I would like to thank Bill. Bill is um, he's just a great Christian man who's been very helpful to us. And I want to thank you for having me on the show. And I do know that you have made a lot of preparations. Um, you did a very good job preparing for this show. Well, we're going to be talking a little about Bill tonight. And uh, <laughs> uh, thank you uh, for doing the show with me tonight. I know this is a subject that's near and dear to you. And uh, the, the title of tonight's program is The State of the Church in Christian Identity. Uh, but before we begin, I would like to open with a prayer. So, our Father in heaven, the God of the white race, we give thanks this evening for the opportunity to share our testimonies and to expound upon the congregations of Israel and to provide counsel to the brethren regarding worship and fellowship. And we pray you bless the church within Christian identity, and that tonight's message will be a blessing to the listeners. And we pray for Brother Bill and the work you have given him to do. Uh, may his vacation serve him and his body well. Uh, we grant, pray that you grant us the, the privilege of our conversation tonight, that it glorifies thy power in heaven and earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Well, um, as you tell me, listeners, that when Don and I give sermons at our church, it's uh, usually preceded by a scripture reading that pertains to the subject. So I thought it would be fun tonight to do the same for both of us without knowing uh, what passage the other will be quoting. And uh, I'll tell you, sometimes it's really uncanny how every other week our, our sermon somehow seemed to dovetail. <laughs> so we're going to let the Holy Spirit lead us tonight with the Word of God with a short commentary to follow and uh, then a testimony of how we came to Christian identity. I chose for my scripture reading tonight Matthew sixteen eighteen, which says, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. End quote. Well, the false assumption is that the, uh, the Christian church is founded on uh, Peter, uh, a mortal man, and this comes primarily from the Roman Catholic Church. Rather than Christ as our rock on which the church should be built, uh, I'd say the gates of hell or death uh, have prevailed against the Roman Catholic Church in its long sordid history. 
with the various inquisitions, um, the Protestant Reformation probably put a dent in their style. And then there was Napoleon who arrested the Pope and threw him in jail. Uh, but the one I'm looking for is in uh, Revelation 17, speaking of Mystery Babylon, which I think is some kind of consortium between uh, the Catholic Church and Jews. Uh, and, and you can throw in the, the Judeo-Christians with that. Uh, when Jesus said, my church, I think he meant my church is not an institution or organized religion or a building. And it's those Adamic Israelite people that are divinely called and chosen of God to glorify him to plant the seeds of the good news to the rest of our race. In other words, we plant and he grows. And uh, more harm has come from our understanding or misunderstanding of the church thanks to the Roman Catholic Church. But I think uh, Christian identity can and will change that. Uh, with due diligence. But Pastor Elmore, what is your uh, scripture reading this evening? I chose uh, Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now, this is a scripture which shows, it's a New Testament scripture, but it shows that you have to understand also the Old Testament. How would you know what the doctrine of Balaam is, uh, that he taught Balak if he did not have the Old Testament? And how do you know what sacrifice unto idols and to commit fornication is if you also do not have the Old Testament. The doctrine of Balaam is held by most churches. In fact, the churches that I grew up in held that doctrine, uh, which was like you were talking about. It follows the lead of Rome. It doesn't make any difference that Jesus holds it against them. The essence of what Balaam counseled Balak was that there was no curse against the people of Israel. But if Israel intermarried with people whom he said not to intermarry with, then they were judged. So it took me a long time to find out what this verse has meant. And I see it as uh, right now that we are committing genocide among ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, by miscegenation. By Very important church doctrine. I think that would be uh, a good transition into uh, telling a little bit a uh, short history of how we both got involved with a, uh, a CI church because we were both fed up with um, the church establishment. So um, I'll go ahead first and uh, just say that I was raised a a Methodist, and went to church all my uh, childhood up into my uh, high school days. But uh, I sensed something was wrong after I graduated and uh, didn't go to church for many years. Uh, and uh, 
Uh, I started getting into uh, an awakening with revisionist uh, history and, and the whole Holocaust yarn. And so I had somewhat of an understanding of uh, uh, the shenanigans that Jews had been pulling. Uh, and, and that fit in perfectly when I was first introduced to uh, the Christian identity. Uh, I didn't find a church right away. And I know that's a frustration for a lot of people out there. It, it took me quite a few years before I, I finally found a fellowship. But um, uh, that was basically my, my story is that um, I think when you seek, you, you shall find. And um, uh, I found some good people, and uh, I, I've had the, the bug ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I couldn't get enough um, uh, of these truths. Uh, it, it still amazes me how much joy I get in, in reading new books and, and reading different perspectives. Uh, at at the, the beginning, I, I uh, was just, the Bible says, buy the truth, and I was buying everything available. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I just have this insatiable appetite for uh, for reading, and uh, over the years have uh, done a pretty extensive uh, library. Um, and I finally did find um, a church. It was it started out from a uh, tax protester group, and one of the the people there was uh, an old ex uh, Sundays of God preacher and um, it, it took me a couple of years to convince him uh, of the Christian identity message but uh, the the church eventually evolved in, into just that a Christian identity church and uh, we met in an old log cabin that another church had abandoned they said we could use it if um, we uh, mowed the lawn every now and then. And so uh, we were there for several years, and uh, finally the property sold, and, and we moved to another location, which was a private residence, uh, a garage that had an upstairs, which we nicknamed the upper room. And um, uh, things were going along fine until... Um, the past caught up with this particular preacher, and we found out that um, uh, he was stealing money and and uh, lying about things, and and so um, we we had a rough going on through several months, and finally we had to let him go. And the congregation decided that uh, we still wanted the fellowship, and. Um, we would uh, have a church run by committee. And uh, we had enough elders so that we could rotate four or five times a month uh, behind the pulpit. Well, one by one, uh, all kind of fell away from wanting to do it except for me. <laughs> uh, I had uh, previous experience uh, speaking before large groups uh, in politics and uh, running for public office, and uh, I loved writing. So 
it was kind of a perfect fit for me um, in that um, I, uh, I just kind of fell into it by default. So I'll stop right there. And I've heard your story before, and, and I just love hearing it every time. So why don't you go ahead and tell us how you uh, got involved with the CI Church. I was brought up in a community Baptist church, which I went to all through my high school years. But I knew it was not the truth. I later found out that it had a lot of Freemasons in it, which is very common among Baptist churches. But I knew it was not the correct church. Uh, I remember when I was very little, uh, there was a movie my parents wanted to the ghost wanted to take us to go see. It was a cartoon at the movie theater. And I was about maybe nine years old, and I said I didn't want to go because that would violate the Sabbath. Anyway, they asked the preacher, and he said it was okay to go. And from there, things I knew was not the right church. Uh, so I made an effort to find the right church, and there are churches who disagree with each other, uh, who have opposite doctrines, so it's very complicated. I went to the Presbyterian, I went to the Methodist, I went to the Christian scientists, I went to even the Roman Catholic Church and took instructions there. I was trying to find which church was the right one out of all these denominations. When I went to college, uh, I was still searching for the right denomination. And uh, when I was 21, I decided to join a landmark Baptist church, which I did join. While a member of that church, I also discovered a newsletter, which was the Baptist Examiner, uh, that was Calvinistic. I never heard of Calvinistic doctrine. My church was Arminian. So I asked a visiting preacher about these doctrines, and our church pastor got very upset at me. <laughs> and I figured that his Arminian ways was wrong, so I eventually went to this Calvinistic church, which was 200 miles away from where I lived. I went there for one year. And then I moved there and stayed there for seven years. Uh, then I moved to a church in the coal mining country of Virginia. Uh, they also, just like this other Calvinistic church, did not celebrate Christmas or Easter, which was right. Uh, but they didn't celebrate anything else. They also uh, had the Schofield Bible, which is a very pro-Israelite Bible. Yes. I was a reader of the Spotlight Newsletter. And in that newsletter, which, as you know, was uh, had a basis towards conservative, I saw an advertisement for a cassette tape, so I ordered it. And that tape helped bring me into this message. It took several years. But I eventually quit the church there in Virginia. It was a very pleasant split. Uh, I just knew that was not the right church. After a couple more years, I went back home to Cincinnati and I, I still, there was no church that I knew of in the whole eastern part of the United States. Now, that means there, there, there were churches, but I couldn't find any. Uh, 
I did find an Episcopal church that had broken away from the main branch when they became too liberal. It's very interesting that this Episcopal church taught uh, that Jesus Christ went to England during his youth, uh, which I found very fascinating. I never heard of such a thing in my Baptist church. Well, eventually, I went to a political meeting when I heard the main speaker talk about the Jubilee. Well, I asked him after his speech if he knew about who were the Israelites. He indicated that he did, and he later told me he always wanted a church. Well, that's what I was looking for. He said he had started a Bible study in his garage, and would I be interested? Well, I certainly would be interested. So after going there for about two months, uh, he was in the hospital with a heart problem. Now, he had had two operations prior to this, and he said he would not have a third. Back in those days, they kind of split you right down through the breastplate and pull it apart. He said it was way too painful. He asked me if I would preach for him, which I said yes. And the last time I saw him in the hospital bed, he asked me a question. He said if he would die, would I take his Bible study over for him? I agreed to do that. Uh, I said if at least one person showed up, I would keep on going. He died shortly thereafter. I preached his funeral message and his burial. So the people in the Bible study met in his basement for a couple of months. Then his wife said that she was moving. We then decided what our next plan would be. We decided to meet at the four families' homes on a rotating basis. And that's what we did. After a couple of years, we heard about it and met Dan Gaiman, who's located in Missouri. And we went out to the feast days to celebrate them with uh, Shell City, Missouri. Dan eventually knew of my situation and told me that I should be ordained as a minister. I talked it over with our members, and we agreed that after I was ordained, we would Hello, Don. Yes? I, I lost your audio there for a second. Oh, did you? Uh, well, I don't I don't know where I, you lost it at. The last I was ordained seconds. in 1987 by Dan Gaiman in Shell City, Missouri. Right. And uh, so we quit meeting on Saturday night and would meet on Sunday morning. And we quit being a Bible study and we began to be a church. So after two years, I became ordained by the Church of Israel in Shell City, Missouri. And our Bible study became to do the things that a church does. We had communion, fellowship, prayers, anointing of oil for the sick, sermons, and etc. So that's a very short version of what happened um, in my story of how I became a Christian Israelite and became ordained into the ministry. We both 
got there because there was basically no other person to do it. Right. And you knew of churches west of the Mississippi, but east of the Mississippi is another story. Yes. Uh, there must have been some, and there were some, but I did not know of them. And no, I, no one out west knew of them either. Uh, so it was either we became a church or there was no church to fellowship. Now, since then, uh, we have met other churches that have sprung up east of the Mississippi that are reasonably close to us, and we have fellowship at several churches that are close to us. But there's really not many churches. It's probably the biggest problem in Christian identity. Right. That people um, have that people have no place to go. They 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 have no no church to go to. Right. Well I've I've heard of people meeting in all kinds of venues and in fact I think you mentioned at one time uh, your group was meeting uh, um about the pet store? Yes, when we became a church, uh, we quit meeting in homes, and we, we first met in a motel conference room, and then we got a place of our own, which was a room above the pet shop, and that was okay. Uh, I guess you could ham- say you, you were above all the animals of the earth. Yes, and sometimes the animals the animals would yell <laughs> carry on. <laughs> but uh then we started a building fund. We had five dollars in the building fund and the next week a member came and said there's a church for sale down the street. He looked at it, he got us an appointment. So with five dollars on our fund we went and uh we eventually bought this building. And that was somewhat of a miracle. It was. It was absolutely a miracle. And you were there for how many years? Over 10 years? I lost his audio again. Hello, Don. Are you there? Yeah, it's these old Kentucky phones. Um, I don't know what happened, Bill. I, uh, you well, well, we'll fix, fix it. Are we having technical problems? No, this is up to Don. He, he's dialed in, right? Yeah, I, I don't hear him though. Right, I don't know where he went. The the, the um, it's out of my control. I hear you now. Okay, you you have a loose connection on your phone there. Or, uh, you are muted. I didn't have any audio there for about twenty seconds. Yeah, it goes in and out. Oh well. <laughs> um, Try not to jiggle your phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's talk about ordination here a, a little bit. Um, I, I know a lot of people 
uh, want to get into ministry and and uh, uh, so, uh, people have asked me over the years, well, who ordained you? And uh, they all, uh, I'm no more ordained than um, the Apostles of Christ Day. You know, they they didn't go to seminary or Bible college uh, to get a piece of paper. And um, but um, you know, ordination is is basically uh, how the establishment churches uh, put somebody in a particular ministerial function. Um, and the um, the Roman Catholic Church goes so far as uh, putting forth the notion of apostolic succession, which uh, consists in the belief that all ordained clergy are ordained by bishops who are ordained by other bishops, and so on and so on, tracing back the bishops ordained by the apostles who were ordained by Christ. Well, I don't believe that for one minute. <laughs> Um, and then you have the Protestant churches uh, who have their rites or rituals uh, in the various churches that recognize and confirm that an individual has been called by God uh, into the ministry and usually have gone through a period of uh, discernment and training uh, related to this calling, and, and they then authorize them uh, to take on the, uh, the office of that ministry. Well, um, I was in Christian identity for over 20 years uh, before I got into the pastorate by default, and uh, have never really uh, considered. You know, I don't. I, I don't hold it against anybody that that um, uh, is ordained within Christian identity. It, it's I guess the the point is that um, um, uh, they're they're well read and uh, have an, a good understanding uh, of the scriptures, and uh, I dare say that there's a lot of uh, men in our movement that that know the scriptures better than most Judeo-Christian ministers that are ordained. Uh, I think it's probably um, good to define what a church is. Uh, most of us know that uh, the word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, um, but uh, this word's been poisoned by uh, uh, false concepts regarding what a church is. And uh, Little and Scott says it's an assembly of the citizens regularly summoned. Uh, but it doesn't denote uh, an edifice or any systematized organization uh, with a professional hierarchy. But it's rather simply the assembly. Those specifically are the children of Israel summoned by God. And it's always a body of true Israelite Christians. And they're called. Whether or not uh, they happen to be currently assembled or not. So, usually it's, it's translated as the called out ones. 
and um, not necessarily a, a building or place where Christians go to worship. But um, that doesn't mean that Christians can't get together in a, a place with a roof over their heads, right? <laughs> um, I think it's, it, the fault can be squarely put on the Roman Catholic Church who kind of redefined ecclesia to mean assembly rather than the called out ones and uh, compare what they consider to be a, a spiritual dynamic, uh, something that can be a jigsaw puzzle. You know, uh, but I ask you, where does a three-dimensional chief cornerstone fit into a two-dimensional jigsaw puzzle? <laughs> um, the ecclesia is, as Ephesians two twenty-one says, a building fitly framed together and grows into a holy temple of the Lord. And we also read in Romans eleven thirty-six. For of him and through him and unto him are all things. So this is the essential deity of Christ, not man. Um, not, however, in, in a mere individual sense, but as an organization, the, the parts being adapted and articulated to one another, uh, being a continuous 24-7 process rather than uh, the weekly uh, meeting of going to a building or church. But um, I've also understood it to be uh, the church can be a, a, a body politic. Um, it's, it's called the body of Christ, uh, having somewhat of a governmental role because the kingdom of God is uh, an aspect of government. Um, I've heard there's four elements to the kingdom. There's people, land, laws, and a king. And um, we have all those elements biblically. Well, the first church uh, was what Acts 7.38 calls the church in the wilderness. And it was established under Moses. So this Greek word for church, the ecclesia, uh, means the called out ones, and, and uh, the first church that was called out was called out of Egypt, which was a, uh, a type of the world or the world system. And that seems to me to be um, exactly what most people are looking for in Christian identity. They, they don't like the world they see around them uh, because of the fact that it's multicultural and um, has distorted um, Christ and, and the Word of God. Um, most people have a, uh, a tainted idea of what the first century church was all about. And um, there, there was quite a difference between um, uh, England and the Mediterranean uh, area, uh, especially in Judea, you mentioned um, uh, some church discovering uh, Christ being in England. Are you there, Don? 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 
Am I just rambling on here? <laughs> Hello? I think it might be my line. Debbie? Dad? Yeah, bring me down the phone. Bring me down the phone. Bring me the phone. I'm going to switch to another phone here. It might be my phone here. The, the cord sometimes acts up. Hello, oh, we're unmuted. Hello? Yes, it sounds seems like Don dropped off again. He dropped off this time. He disconnected. I think it might be my phone. No, it's not your phone. How could it be your phone? You're you're connected to talk to. I know, but I've got a, a bad cord. That still has nothing to do with Don's disconnecting from talk to. He's disconnected. Okay, I'm switching phones now. Hello? 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 Don, can you hear me? Don's not here. Don disconnected. It's not your problem. Oh. <laughs> I, I tried to tell you that before you switched phones. Oh, I was trying to talk to my wife at the same time. <laughs> Oh, he, he disconnected. I, I don't know where he went. Well, maybe he'll call back in, hopefully. Well, well I hope. Evidently, his phone service is terrible. I, 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 was, I, I was half listening, and, and that's when I heard your problem. And uh, here. Well, uh, my wife is going to call his wife's cell phone, see what's going on there. But uh, I'll uh, I'll just continue on here. Hopefully he'll uh, he'll get back on. Um, I was talking about the uh, the first century church, and um, there's a uh, a book I would recommend to anybody wanting to know more about Christianity in England uh, and how Christianity came about there before uh, these other churches developed in the, the Mediterranean. It's a book called Celt, Druid, and Chaldee, and the author is Isabel Hill Elder. Uh, the fact that Christianity uh, as a church was born, the first above-ground church was born in England, uh, before anywhere else, uh, and that England was a professed Christian country 100 years before Rome, uh, and in fact, when Rome was still persecuting Christians. Uh, Paul mentions his perils among the false brethren in uh, 2 Corinthians 11.26 and in Galatians 2.4 that says, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy on our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. 
end quote. Well, not all Judeans who converted to Christianity in the first century did so with sincerity. Uh, there were often infiltrators attempting to subvert the Gospels. Um, I'm I went to here, Mark. Are you with us? I'm with you. <laughs> okay. You are muted. Uh, I'm still talking about the uh, the first century church and um, the um, how it developed in England and um, recommended the book The Celt Druid and Colby by Isabel Hill Elder. Um, so I'll just continue here and you can jump in. Anytime you have a comment, uh, Don, just feel free to uh, interject. Uh, as I was saying, not all Judeans who converted to Christianity in the first century did so with sincerity. Um, there were often infiltrators attempting to subvert the gospel. Um, I went to an identity conference once, and there was some discussion about infiltrators. <laughs> but the consensus was that we had nothing to be infiltrated about. Uh, I think the concern was probably undercover media scribes who were writing bad things about us at the time. But, you know, we're not a secret society, and, and we don't light a candle and put it under the pulpit. The, the big controversy back in the first century between Israelites in Jerusalem and Israelites elsewhere was about circumcision. And after reading Galatians 2.15-18, through 18, we learn about justification. And this is when Christ gives us a brand new start in life, where he gives us his righteousness, and we find the assurance of it through faith. So we're no longer accused by the law. Well, the confusion about law is quickly nailed to the cross when we realize those things that Christ came to replace. And it should be said that Paul was not antinomian, uh, he was anti-ritual, and uh, probably nobody was more hated than Paul because he stood up to the Judaizers. And um, uh, we were honored when Bill uh, visited our church, and the title of his sermon that he gave was Paul, the First Christian Identity Preacher. And we really appreciated that message, Bill. But... We're a lot like the first century church, uh, with no king but Jesus, especially these days, uh, with corrupt politicians and all. Uh, and we're somewhat despised by those who hate the good news of why Christ came to earth. There's uh, no days taking the lost out of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so... Uh, Therefore, wolves in sheep's clothing will not enjoy the same easy pickings they had in churchianity when they try to divide and conquer Christian identity. Uh, I'll say from my perspective, the last 20 years have been, been, been pretty rough. Uh, but I don't think going through the refiner's fire has been in vain. Uh, you know, I think we're stronger than ever today even though uh, one of our weak points is unity. Uh, the Great Commission uh, was not 
the last couple of centuries. It was filled, fulfilled, I believe, in the first century, where the good news of the gospel was brought to the ears of white people, not Africans, not Asians, not South Americans, but our people. And the first century Christians were irresistibly attracted to the good news of the Gospels of Jesus Christ because the same Christian identity message we preach today was given to them at that time. Uh, Jesus said he only came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and there they were, white people, being sought by the disciples and apostles. The first century apostolic church really was an identity movement in that the disciples were reaching out with the good news gospels to their own kind. And uh, the message was not preached to non-whites because the Great Commission did not include them. And it's the same way today. Um, We're like missionaries today to uh, white people who've become, who've lost their way again. Um, I thank God that not too many, there's not too many 501c3 churches in, in Christian identity. And um, I'm so honored to have signed on with the Fellowship of God's Covenant people as a member of this body of Christ and don't have to look at that damn gold fringe flag that's in the corner of most churches today. And uh, I know there's some who contend that the Sabbath is just a day of rest and was never designed to become the institutional monster that it's become with the advent of the megachurch. However, in the first century, Christians did assemble themselves together for worship, prayer, and fellowship. In fact, Hebrews 10.23 instructs us to Hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, Hebrews 10.25. Some of the early Christians of the primitive church were severely persecuted, but the devout of the saints uh, would sometimes meet in caves and, and underground catacombs to uh, observe the suffering and death of Christ in communion. Well, how much more difficult do you think it would be for people to attend our church or any Christian identity church, let, it, let alone becoming members, if, if we met in dark, dank caverns of the earth in secret? Correct. The purpose of of this message is important because it reveals the consequences of departure, leaving what Christianity was called in the first century the way, uh, as it was called, and and rather than what it later started drifting towards the way of the heathens, uh, as has been adopted by Uh, the contemporary apostate church of darkness. The truth truth of what is considered the church is nothing more than a fictional legend, a contraption of corporate Babylon and has no semblance to 
of the biblical ecclesia or the first century apostolics. And uh, legends Let me interrupt are, you, right? But the early body of Christ was a body politic, more concerned with the advancement of the kingdom of God than with the advancement of man-made institutions under the guise of religion. Organized religions are, for the most part, all political entities. They massage their how their members are supposed to think to suit the current political agendas. Well, make no mistake about it, the insiders of the Vatican and Zionism are working towards the same end, globalization. And, uh, in fact, we have one in our own backyard, uh, Don, called Answers in Genesis. Correct. Uh, and, and they're a pretty big outfit, but it, there's one thing they're not. What is that? Don? Well, I don't, I don't think they are. They're not a church. They don't claim to be a church. They're not a church. They, right. But they teach miscegenation, which is very bad. I, th I think if you go to high school or college and you're taught Christianity, you're taught Roman Catholicism. And then in the 1500s, they had a revolt had the Protestants. But see, that's not the true picture of the Church of Jesus Christ. There were true churches of Jesus Christ all the way through that time period that most people never hear about. And the Catholic Church hated those churches. Uh, there were churches in the Alps of Europe that said we were founded by the disciples and the apostles of Jesus Christ. Well, and, people uh, uh, cry about separation of church and state, and um, there's somewhat of a truism to that throughout history in that the uh, what I call the priestcraft actually supports um, the, the state. And uh, you can take uh, organizations like Answers in Genesis, and what they are are corporations. And corporations are creatures of the state. And to call yourself a Christian, you're a creation of God, not the state. Right? Correct. But they have made all of us basically corporations. Uh, if, you, if you see things that are in all capitals, that identifies the corporation. And that's why a lot of people are, uh, they understand what's going on and they don't want to be a part of it. Well, we uh, are in Babylon. Yes, and, we are. And, uh, uh, let me, let me tell you Daniel, about it. Daniel got through it somehow. Yes, and, uh, and we can too. But we should understand that the church, uh, the concept, conceptually, has been hijacked. Um, mainly by the the RCC, and um, it goes back to Constantine that uh, created the symbiosis of church and state, and all the bells and whistles of religion, and uh, introduced the again the elitist uh, priestcraft, which is the opposite uh, uh, of the order of Melchizedek, 
uh, and brought in on holy days and, and works and rituals and church law, cruelty and persecution, church idolatry, universalism, uh, vestments and costuming. Uh, I, think it goes back, I think it goes back a few years before Constantine. Uh, you see, the Roman More Catholic or less Church institutionalized these things. Yes, that's correct. But uh, there was a Roman Catholic priest who had never read his Bible. Isn't that, a, isn't that crazy? He was a priest who had never read the Bible. He had learned in the seminary all the rituals of the Catholic Church, but he had never read his Bible. I've heard that many when times started, the Bible was chained to the sanctuary. <laughs> so the priest. That's correct. Uh, only had limited access, or was given parts of the Bible, but not a whole Bible. That's correct. And the printing press changed all this. But when he started to read the Bible, he found many differences between what it says and the Roman Catholic Church, so many differences that he quit the Roman Catholic Church. And there were a lot of people who began to follow him. Now, the Roman Catholic Church and the religious priests, uh, they hated this man. In fact, they murdered him. It's told in the Martyr's Mirror, which is a book that's followed by the Mennonites and later by the Amish. Uh, and that's probably the second most popular book among these people, the Bible and Martyr's Mirror. Uh, I, th I think the Roman Catholic Church had its foundation set by Simon Magus, who's talked about in the Bible. He didn't necessarily institutional, I think Constantine institution, the Roman Catholic Church. But Simon Magus was something else. It's talked about a lot in Acts chapter 8. And Simon was a Samaritan. He was not a Judean. And he used uh, demonic powers to do miracles and wonders. And the Bible says the whole population of Samaria gave heed to him. He was looked on as the greatest prophets. All Samaritans believed in him. They worshipped him as one great one, God. They called him God in the flesh. And you read Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke is also careful to inform us that Simon had become firmly established in Samaria as the Great One and had practiced his powers for a long time. Simon even recognized that Christ's power was greater than his, but he wanted to be associated with that great name. Simon, seeing the potential of the Christian religion, waited until the authorities, Peter and John, came to Samaria and then offered to pay them money in order to obtain apostleship in the Christian church. That's where you get the word at, which is from Simon. Uh, he wanted to buy an apostleship. Well, Peter perceived that Simon was in, quote, the gall of bitterness and in the bond of lawlessness. That's Acts 8.23. And if you look up Lang's commentary, it says, I regard you as a man whose influence be like that of bitter gall, which is poison, and a bond of unrighteousness, which is lawlessness, or a man who has reached such a state. 
not only was Simon in Peter's time a great antagonist to the church, but he would be an adversary of the future. And we're, we're in that time. Even after Peter's strong rebuke, Simon did not repent, and Peter knew that he wouldn't. He deliberately continued in this error with his later followers calling, himself, calling themselves Christian. He went to Rome. Simon Magus went to Rome in 45 A.D. and made such an impression by his magical powers that the Romans honored him as a god. They built a statue of him erected on the Tiber River and called him uh, a god. When Simon died, he was buried in a pagan cemetery on a knoll called Vaticanus. The Latin word vadis means prophet or soothsayer. Simon taught a universal popular following. The Roman Catholics believe Simon Magus. They do not believe Simon Peter. The Christians in Rome would never have buried uh, Peter in a pagan cemetery. And Peter had confrontations with this man before he went to Rome. Uh, you can't believe both these people. What, right. what the Roman Catholics have done, they have used Simon Magus, and you can use Peter, which is translated interpreter. Simon, you use Simon Peter, Simon the interpreter. They use, they say that he was the first pope in Rome, and they play it off as Simon Peter the apostle, but that's not true. It was Simon Magus, and. Uh, well, and that fits in with my scripture reading that I started off with in Matthew sixteen eighteen. Uh, Correct. Uh, Upon this rock I will build my church. Right, exactly right. You know what I I went to a uh, seminary one day to go to the library to find some research, and we had two students of that seminary who who went with me. And I asked for some books, and why the girl there at the desk was looking up the books, the two students said that I was a preacher. Well, she said, uh, she went and got me a key to the basement where there was a pastor's library. Only pastors could go down there. <laughs> so she gave me a key, and I had to, I left the two students, and I went down there. They had a fascinating display of material. They had like all of the uh, Jehovah Witnesses magazines. They had these large encyclopedias and large books that uh, talk, talk about things on the Bible. And I was fascinated by it. I looked up Simon Magus and these encyclopedias would have 20 pages. Now they're, they're big books, they're double column, they're small print, and when you look at an encyclopedia today, you only get half a page, it, that much. Simon Magus was, was in the past greatly taught as the person who was greatly loved in Samaria, who went to Rome, was classified as a god in Rome, and who was a universalist. Well, if you want to be popular, that's what you're going to have to teach, is a universal doctrine. I've, I've come to see that. We're not to go out and get uh, all these people. 
into our church. We're we're going to be a small church. Whoever God brings to our church will we take in, but we're not going to be a large church. We're not uh, going to be a what has happened? You had the Roman Catholic Church, which was, which was a false church, and then the Protestant Reformation. And there's a lot of arguments about those particular churches. And since the time of our history, those churches, their membership is falling down. And now we have these massive big churches, which are multi uh, culture of multiracial churches that preach a Judeo-Christian doctrine. But see, in the history of the true church, there has always been a remnant small church that stood for what Jesus Christ talked about, that the white person had a church, that they came from Adam. The non-conformist, a separatist. Yes, yes, and God made a special covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his seed. And that is the key. It's the covenant that God made with our fathers. And that's, that's the reason why I have hope. I know that we can't lose, that we're not going to be destroyed, because God said we're not going to be destroyed. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Correct. Absolutely correct. Well, we need to be vigilant in Christian identity by keeping it simple. Um, And so, uh, by virtue of the fact that um, I just recently gave a, a message on the religious test, and if we were to have hundreds of doctrines, uh, that would quickly reduce our movement to uh, non-moving parts. Uh, so we have to reduce the, the premise of Christian identity to the very basic and essential elements of what God wants us to get moving. Uh, and I like how, uh, when I first met you, uh, it, it was a very simple proposition uh, that we are Israel, that Jews are imposters, that we believe in the deity of Christ. Everything else is subject to the autonomy of uh, local churches or fellowships. Right. And uh, it has to be stated that Christian identity is not a denomination. We don't have uh, a national headquarters. Uh, we're not a cult. Uh, I hear that oftentimes from people that don't know what they're talking about. Um, cults are usually somebody with uh, uh, one charismatic leader. Well, we don't have that. We never have. <laughs> and uh, cults usually want uh, their followers to surrender all their material possessions and uh, uh, vow their, their lives to, to the cult. Well... Good luck with that one in Christian identity. (laughs) (laughs) Although there are... Go ahead. There's also something else. Uh, There was a preacher who went to a seminary and graduated. 
And now he's a Christian identity person. Mm-hmm. He has he is in the process of writing seven books that talk about discovering the story of your biblical heritage. He has written two of them so far. There's five more to go. If you go to www.yourbiblicalheritage.com, you can download a book. It's a masterful series of books uh, that's written by this individual, who will be coming to our church next month, by the way. Uh, Both you and I have uh, been doing the proofreading uh, on these uh, uh, books, and I think it's okay to say that... uh, uh, the author is uh, Dr. Lawrence Blanchard, right. and um, that um, uh, this is really putting forth. Um, it's not a correspondence course per se, but it, it's uh, an indisputable way of, of conveying the Christian identity message in simple, irrefutable terms. And he does That's it. That's what it's written for. Yes. Step by step piecemeal by piecemeal, so that uh, it really is undeniable, the, the, the approach that he takes. And I was in a Bible study with him that had um, Judeo-Christians in there, and he, he took them through step by step. He didn't come forth and say, here's who Israel is. But every person in there had to say it from the proof of the Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, who Israel was, and they were correct. And then we got on who the Jew was, and they had to say that was correct. Yeah. Most of them dropped out because of, I guess you just have to say, the fear of the Jew, which was a lot of people in the New Testament were, had that particular aspect about them, too. That well, they there were are uh, different teachings out there, but I must say that these seven volumes are all focused uh, on uncontroversial subjects. Uh, so there's different camps or schools of thought pertaining to a particular teaching like baptism or communion, sacred names, uh, Christmas, King James ver- Version only, the Trinity. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And uh, these are controversies that, that can be used by the enemy or just fanatics to divide and conquer and to cause splinter groups, or to demoralize people. But um, I think that behooves those of us that are in it for the long haul uh, to be vigilant. And uh, I have to say that there's kind of been a transition from the 1980s to the mid-90s of uh, dwindling ministries, and uh, one hardly ever hears any more of um, Bible camps or conferences. Uh, and it's made the transition into uh, home churches, which I think is a healthy thing. Uh, they, can, they can grow into uh, uh, community churches. But um, it was probably because uh, of money, and egos and, and the type of outreach. Um, there never has been a big Christian identity church. I, I remember a friend of ours with a truck driver who went all over the United States, and he, 
he stopped into just about every Christian identity church that, that's in the country. And it was interesting what he says is all of them didn't have more than 15 or 20 people, if that. The biggest church I've heard about has about 100. Yeah. <laughs> the largest one. Well, a church should have a, uh, a statement of faith and guidelines so that people know what they're getting into. Um, the one thing we have that most mainstream churches don't have is racial cohesion. Uh, we're a whites-only church. And as this abomination uh, gets worse and worse, uh, I think we will naturally be attracting people to uh, a church where people want to be with their own kind. Correct. And, uh, and you know, in the, in the Bible, most churches were very small. And even the church at Rome, the church at Rome wasn't the Roman Catholic Church. It was a small church that met about a mile away from the Vatican. It was met in a little building. And Paul saluted and wrote the names of every person. He only wrote 28 names. So there was well, the megachurch mega is a recent phenomenon. Uh, yeah. I think it takes a lot of money to grease the skids, and uh, there's probably some Jew behind the scenes somewhere uh, putting $100 bills in the collection plate. The yeah, difference between them and us is that uh, when people uh, come to a Christian identity church like ours, we try and help them develop a racial consciousness in uh, how to deal with Jews and, and other races and, and doctrines that smack of universalism because um, people today are, are brainwashed from cradle to grave if, if they've gone to public schools or Judeo-Christian churches, and it's not like they just instantly uh, wake up and get it. But... Uh, that's where we should uh, have patience and be Christ-like and diplomatic. Uh, we're ambassadors of Christ in, in warning people of, um, of, of the type of Babylon that they're coming out of. Well, every country in Europe, which includes most of our ancestors, they kicked the Jews out of their nation. At least, most of them kicked them out at least three times. I think the thing that really changed history was when England kicked them out in the year 1290. And there was no Jew in England until the middle of the 1600s when Oliver Cromwell let them back in. Mm-hmm. And since that time, we've been on a downskid. Uh, down and in 1492, Spain kicked them out. And then there's all these other countries that kicked them out. I mean, why did they kick them out? And when you see the mind of the Jew, um, they weren't here in large numbers uh, until... Uh, late, uh, late in the 1800s where they began to come over in big numbers, but there's two kinds of Jews. You have the Sephitic Jews and you have the Ashkenazi Jews. And they don't always get along very good together either. Well, that's the dirty little secret. 
That is correct. But, uh, uh, there, yeah, there's definitely internecine warfare amongst Jews themselves or the, the greater New World Order, if you want to, one of many appellations that it's called. Uh, right. And, you know, I think we, uh, we may be small, have uh, small assemblies all over the place, uh, but they consider us a threat uh, because we have the truth, and the Bible says the truth will make people free. Right. And so uh, I realized years ago that I wouldn't put it past them, uh, being that we're such a threat to their propaganda, that they would send the proverbial wolves in sheep's clothing or spoilers to spoil the church. They've certainly been successful uh, in Judeo-Christian churches, your mainstream establishment churches. Uh, not quite as successful in Christian identity. <laughs> uh, because uh, we have um, uh, the weapons that, that God has given us at our disposal. Um, you know, we do, but we do put every sermon on the, our website. Every sermon that's preached is put on our website, word for words. It's typewritten out that they could read it and/or listen to it at their at their leisure. So, well, that's where the the internet is a kind of a two-edged sword. It can be a blessing or a curse, right? Um, there's certainly uh, spoilers on the internet. Um, you know, one thing that God hates, one among many, in Proverbs six sixteen, is those who sow discord among the brethren. Um, we have a, a resolve to issues, whether it's in the church or uh, on the internet, although. I would have to say uh, Matthew 18, due process for grievances, which was meant for within a church, is not always applicable to the Internet because there are people floating around that are anonymous. And we don't know who they are, really. But, um, you know, these spoilers, uh, it's kind of related to the word evil that relates to spoilage, and it's it's usually somebody's attitude or spirit that, that can spoil a fellowship. And um, I think it's in First Thessalonians, it says, avoid all appearance of evil. And um, we have somewhat of a, uh, a sore spot in uh, for the black sheep of Christian identity. And... Uh, uh, that has to do with uh, a more radical wing. Uh, I I liked Aryan Nations uh, at one time, but I think Aryan Nations died with Pastor Richard Butler, and uh, all the people involved with it today, I think, are suspect and and should be shunned uh, because uh, they're they're really not bringing forth the fruits. Of, of the kingdom, I have to say that you know the bond of fellowship is is friendship with a, a genuine sense of love, uh, not just uh, there. You know, people often confuse uh, filial love with agape love. Well, agape love is a higher 
type of love that means duty or responsibility. And uh, it's clearly uh, put forth uh, that Christ said, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. A greater love than this no one has, that one would lay down his life on behalf of his friends. And Christ said, you are my friends if you would do the things which I command you. No longer do I call you a servant, because a servant does not know what his master does. But you I have proclaimed friends, because all things which I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And this is where ordination comes in. He says, I have ordained you. Not just at the time when he lived, but for the last 2,000 years, he is ordaining his called in order that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit would abide, that whatever you may ask the Father in my name, he would give to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And I read that out of the Christogenia New Testament, John 15, 12 through 17. And you know, there's another scripture that says, if a man says, I love God, but he hates his brother, it says, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? 1 John 4.20 You know, um, I hate to bring this up, but there's there's kind of a feud going on between Robert Allen Balasaius and, and Jeff Weekly about, of all things, evil. <laughs> and the last thing that seems to be on their minds is, come let us reason together, or to just shut up because it's gone beyond the point of scholarly discourse and entered the realm of take no prisoners. And this spoils the body of Christ because neither one seems to know how to act like a Christian. So, you know, when we come to an impasse where both parties think he's wrong and I'm right, unless it is poisoning the racial truths of Christian identity or sabotaging the deity of Christ or advocating some kind of immorality, uh, then curling the label of heretic from one side and beating the other over the head with platitudes is spoiling the body of Christ. And unless we have a clear case of someone spoiling the corporate body of believers in Christian identity, which warrants accountability, such as the current Eli James debacle, where there's a preponderance of exhibits that prove the guilt of an offending party, in this case promoting universalism, then the spoilers, those sowing discord, should repent or change their attitude of accusations to the spirit of edification. And, uh, you know, I personally don't see how the rift uh, could have been handled any better than the way Bill responded. Well, let's get into uh, leadership. I uh, recently gave a book review on the Judeo-Christian book, Pagan Christianity, by uh, George Barna and uh, Frank Viola, which 
argues against traditional church leadership and is basically anarchy. Again, avoid all appearance of evil. I even heard some people um, talk about Christian anarchy in Christian identity. I said I, I liked Aryan Nations back in its heyday, but I, I didn't belong to it. And all the people involved with it today uh, should be distanced, I think, from, from C. I'll give you some examples. One of these uh, self-appointed leaders started the newsletter selling it for a whopping $19 a copy, and his first issue told three of my articles without permission. And I don't have anything to sell. I, my philosophy is freely have I received, freely do I give back. And there's another leader who thinks he's the um, leader of Aryan nations and has the sole proprietorship of Christian identity. Uh, he decided to hook up with a motorcycle gang called the Sadistic Souls. Really? Do we need that kind of leadership? That's not leadership. That's stupidity. And it gives Christian identity a black eye. I think this is feet that are swift and running to mischief. In fact, sprinting to appear evil. And there just there is no unity with these kind of aberrations when most Christian identity do not pray around in uniforms and act like Jews. I think people are not turned off by leaders because they're innovative and lead their flocks in new and positive directions. People are turned off by leaders who sin, who lie and cheat, who have no sense of what the church is. And uh, some people use Christian identity as a soapbox for fan clubs. Uh, let me tell you, those people, it's not for you. It's for the glory of God. But, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if these folks just kept to themselves, but they have websites, and they love to be in the spotlight of Jewish media. And they try to be all things and fight people, but they wind up being nothing to nobody. One so-called pastor recently said that if he doesn't get financial support, he was going to shut down the discussion board on his website. <laughs> that, that sounds like Oral Roberts from a few years ago. As long as there are wrong motives like these uh, aforementioned, we kind of have a leadership crisis in Christian identity and um, a problem with what a church is. And it's these type of hypocrites that should be shunned and they are, for the most part. But I, I hate to say this, but there's a number of ex-felons who have become CI pastors, and none of them spent their time in prison, in prison wisely, and that becomes evident in the way they slander other pastors, and they spread the gospel of unchristian doctrines, and associate with universalists, turning a blind eye to apostasy. It makes those who can, can discern the spirit suspect that they've been compromised and work for the enemy. Christian identity cannot, simply cannot afford leaders who fall away from the faith and cause others 
to leave their commitment to our movement. To be honest, I can only think of one ex-prisoner that goes against the grain, who spent 12 years learning the ancient Greek language and expertly familiar with the classics of antiquity, who translated and published the New Testament in service to Christian identity, who is probably more articulate than college or seminary professors, uh, notwithstanding his sometimes colorful cussing. <laughs> uh, but he doesn't call himself a pastor, but nevertheless has shown an ability to lead our people to the truth, and who has grown a website unlike any other, who befriends people like me who are not dual seed line. In other words, he does not play party politics. In fact, Pastor Elmore, you're dual seed line, and people ask me, how's that going for you? <laughs> and I tell them it's going great in spite of those who cause divisions and cliques. And um, I'll tell you, there was some uh, disinformation. Uh, we knew you were in northern Kentucky for some time, uh, but we were told that you didn't accept anybody if they weren't dual seed line. And nothing could be further from the truth. And uh, I have to say that... Uh, uh, you've grown to be one of my best friends, and uh, it's an honor uh, to congregate with you every Sunday. And I think this is the um, the spirit of fellowship and what a church should be, that we don't have to play party politics, and that uh, our our main premise is what we can unify on. Um, This ex-prisoner that goes against the grain that I'm telling you about uh, leads or shepherds those who thirst for knowledge and understanding of the Word of God. I speak of our gracious host and founder of Christogania.org, Bill Fink. And you can really detect a root of bitterness when the adversaries out there hate leadership so much that their only recourse is to personally attack the person without cause. That means they don't have the law in their heart. A Christian leader must have a good handle on the law. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Leadership addresses the sin nature of man, and rather than the mindless drivel of someone saying they neither endorse or condemn someone, the ideal church has leadership that holds its leaders and those being led accountable, because sin is the transgression of the law, and turning a blind eye to those who are disobedient does not serve God. That means being a religious dictator but it does not mean following the will of God to do what is right. Let's now turn our attention to the congregation and uh, the elders and uh, membership. 
I was I was surprised to hear uh, uh, last week I think it was you said that there's some modern progressive churches that do not require any formal standards for people to join a church. Um, could you elaborate on that? Don? Oh no, we lost him again. Well, uh, Don brought uh, a newspaper article to church, and um, it, it was some church, I, I think it might have been in California, that opened its doors to atheists. And, of course, to be cordial, they left out all the Christian trappings that would inhibit the attendance of non-believers. Well, that's just ridiculous. But, you know, um, I've also heard that the late Dr. Gene Scott uh, in Los Angeles, I lived in Los Angeles for 10 years, he required people to uh, uh, that wanted to attend his uh, services to make reservations if they wanted in. <laughs> now, some may argue that there's nothing in the Bible that says the Bible is a day in which Christians must attend a worship service, per se. Um, but, you know, gathering together is a blessing. The opposite is when his people are disobedient and uh, God scatters them. That happens throughout history. Therefore, when we are joined together, we are in accord with God's will. Hebrews 10.25 says, Hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Again, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. There's this um, insidious mindset that the church must be big. But, uh, you know, God has made sure that Christian identity is small when it comes to local assemblies. And I think the, the thinking behind that might be um, something Sheldon Emery said years ago, that if we're big, if we had a national headquarters, uh, the enemy could take us down in one fell swoop. And I think he's right. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And you know what better day than the day in which we are told to remember the rest and to keep it holy? Now, I'm not dogmatic on any particular day, but Sunday has been the day that most white Christians have observed. Ancient Israel didn't have named days. Their days were numbered so that the Sabbath day of rest rotated every seven years. Membership is important in order to be members of the body of Christ. I believe God wired us in such a way that we have an innate desire to belong to something because most people just don't like to be alone. Uh, we can't all be hermits if our culture and civilization, indeed the kingdom of God, is to advance forward. Uh, the, the church, Ecclesia, 
is a situation in which we commit our lives to the government of Christ with other people who have the same calling. A member is a limb or part of the body. This is a metaphor in the Bible for a congregation. As Ephesians 5.23 puts it, Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.12 really elaborates the structure and function of a church. It says, for even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they be many, are one body, so is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Judeans or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If a foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, does it therefore not belong to the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, does it therefore not belong to the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. But instead, the members of the body, seeming to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we consider the least, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our plainest organ has supreme beauty. There are beautiful features have no deficiency, for God has constructed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, that there should be no division in the body, but that the member should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are a body of Christ and participating members, end quote. Our own physical bodies have replaced the old temple, so that now, collectively, we are the habitation of God, who dwells amongst his people, so that the members of Christ's body constitute the hallowed ground in which we commune with God and with each other. A church is a building in the following metaphor, quote, built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2.20. Now, as members of the body, we are fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. Israel is a house. The white race is kind of like the ancient fasces, from which we get the word fascist. It was a bundle of rods with an axe blade in the middle. Perhaps you've seen it in the back of an old dime. Symbolically, we are 
racially bound together through the strength of being Christ-centered. Now let's talk about elders for a moment. Uh, elders are the olders. <laughs> Men old enough to be familiar with scriptures and to counsel those in need. Uh, we're fortunate in our church to have at least half a dozen any given Sunday in which we pray for the saints, anointing oil uh, with oil the sick and laying on of hands as prescribed for a church. Well, the, uh, the elders assume a higher role of responsibility to help in matters of accountability, whether it's doctrine or conduct. Uh, an elder told me recently that there's not enough teaching on how to behave as a Christian in Christian identity pulpits. And he's right. I, I've heard the same comment from those on the periphery of Christian identity that there's a heavy supply um, of historical, political, and doctrinal issues, but not so much on man's relationship with his fellow man. Uh, maybe it's because we're blessed with so many elders throughout the land that read and know their Bibles. Uh, I think it can be said that there's always going to be bad apples, but they're in the minority. Uh, but they're like the squeaky wheel that gets all the attention. Uh, there's a downside, though, when Christ spoke about the traditions of the elders. Uh, these are men who are taking the word of the pastors, of the priests, or maybe even the rabbis, rather than the word of God for guidance in all, in all things. Uh, I just got a note that uh, Don got disconnected, and he's trying to get back on, but uh, no one is answering. So... I don't know what the uh, the technical problem is there. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that uh, he's he's not here to uh, help wrap things up because it it looks like um, uh, we are running out of time. So, uh, just in conclusion, uh, I wish to emphasize the the blessings of a group of white Christians, be it a home church or a Bible study or political activist, when we enter a phase of growth, the emphasis is on the corporate nature or organic membership of Christian living, whereby we covenant with God and with each other. Uh, if you remember anything from this message, remember this. We become what we are committed to. The disciples were given more than the crowds Jesus spoke to. In 1 Corinthians 4.20 tells us, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. No talk is cheap, but putting words into action is white power, and white power can only come through members of the body of Christ. Paraphrase Romans 6.13. So stop offering your body and each and all of its members as weapons against righteousness. Instead, offer your body and all its members' parts as weapons of God. Come alive from the dead. Seek your commitment away from sin, end quote. The holy war out there today is indeed split between the mystery of iniquity and the mystery of godliness. 
Choose ye this day whom you will serve. And I guarantee that your membership will become a matter of divine revelation. Again, I want to thank uh, Bill uh, for the opportunity to discuss the state of the church in Christian identity. I hope it inspires and motivates those who hunger for collective worship and wholesome fellowship. That a church ecclesia begins with two people and Christ will be with you. I know this simple suggestion works from those who started just like that with humble beginnings. Uh, it's kind of like the old adage, God helps those who help themselves. Don't wait for somebody else to do it because they're probably waiting for somebody else to do it. <laughs> I know it's tough. It took me about seven years to find a fellowship. I wish I had taken my own advice. I have two friends in Australia, and they get together once a week to listen to audio messages, and Christ is with them. The thing is, a church has to start somewhere. So let it begin with you and another person. We look forward to living our lives with you, the brethren and sisters in Christian identity, and you living your lives with us for many years to come. May our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ bless this message and bless Christogania. Thank you for listening. This is Pastor Mark Downey and Pastor Don Elmore. Sorry we lost him on the phone lines. Uh, from Northern Kentucky and the Fellowship of God's Covenant People. Good night and God bless.